Hi everyone, this is Brant Van Rokel, lead pastor of Christ City Kitsilano, and I want to let you know about a couple of things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us at Fifth Avenue Cinema on Burrard Street at 9.30 a.m. We meet every Sunday morning for worship, word, and sacrament, and we'd love for you to join us there. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church Kitsilano is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to hear more about what God has called us to here in Kitsilano, then please reach out to me at brant at christcitychurch.ca or you can visit christcitychurch.ca slash Kitsilano. The scripture reading today is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 through 11. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, Each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you, or even spend the winter, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord, as am I. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers." This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And as you're seated, it's my joy to uh, invite Heath up, Heath Meekel. Um, Heath Meekel is our downtown Eastside chaplain here at Christ City Church. Uh, he's also a dear brother and a great friend of mine. Um, I'm really excited to have him come and bring us the word of God. He preached last time back in the beginning of chapter 15, I think, on the gospel. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yep. That's right. And February. February. Uh, so it's our joy uh, to be in the Christ City Network. We're a neighborhood of a church uh, with three other churches or two other churches that we're partnered with. Uh, and it means that we get to have phenomenal uh, guest uh, speakers that come in and preach for us periodically. And Heath is one of those guys. Um, so excited for what he's brought for us. Heath, can I pray for you before we yeah. begin? Uh, Lord, I pray that you would speak through my brother Heath uh, in powerful ways, that you would use his words as he um, brings us the word of God this morning, uh, that you would empower those words by the Holy Spirit to impact our lives, to change us and to grow us and to cause us to uh, love Christ, obey Christ, uh, be uh, bold in our witness for Jesus in this city, that we would be the fragrance of life in this world that so desperately needs it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. It is really a a privilege and a pleasure. I always love it when I can come to Kitts. Um, So thank you for receiving me and, you know, like putting up with this weird guy with a funny mustache. I've just got to acknowledge that out of the gate. On Thursday this past week, something pretty significant happened in my life. On Thursday, my wife and I celebrated 27 years of marriage. Yeah. I look and I'm like, how could it be that long? And then I look in the mirror and go, oh yeah, I can see that now. So in some ways, our relationship is very typical. You know, we've had ups, we've had downs. You know, year seven was tumultuous and we almost broke up and we had two kids and, and, and life has been hard, wonderful and great. It's been typical. But in some ways, the genesis of our story is very atypical. 
I was 20 years old. I mean, it's the summer of 1993. I'm in Greece doing like evangelism and I spent three months traveling that whole route from like Macedonia down to Greece. I, I traveled that doing street evangelism in the summer of 93. And I first met my wife cooking in a kitchen. And what started with some casual flirting ended up into a fully orbed, transformed life together living as missionaries, and, and we have two kids. And, 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 but the, the genesis is weird. So if you can, re- if you can possibly think, I know this is going to sound weird, um, we, st- we never dated. We spent the formative years of our relationship writing letters back and forth to each other. Now, some of you, that's like a foreign concept. This is like the stuff of period piece movies, Right? It was before the internet was really even a thing. It was certainly before chat GPT. It was before TikTok videos. Cause, oh, can you imagine 20-year-old Heath on a TikTok video? It was before Instagram. It was before Facebook. It was before text messaging. And it was before email. Like, I'm from the dark ages here. Think about this. For our young love to blossom, for it to flourish, I myself, living in Canada... Mariko, my wife, she's in Greece as a missionary kid. We couldn't really even phone. You know how much it cost to phone back then? It was like $5 a minute. That's like 75 bucks a minute today. So what you did, well, yeah, I'm not kidding you. It was like, hi, oh, you're beautiful, love you, bye. So what we did is you take a pen, and you had to analyze the pen. You had to make sure it was the right pen. Then you had to, then, then there was some, you know, like psychological importance on which piece of paper you chose. And then you would pour your heart out onto this piece of paper. And you would write all of the things. And then you would fold it up. And then if you were really cool, you'd spray some of your cologne on there. And then you'd, and you'd walk to the post office. You'd pay like two bucks. And then you waited for a reply for like a month, maybe even two. Because this wasn't in dynamic or real time, rather it, was done, it wasn't dynamic, it was in, wasn't in real time, you actually had to think really, really carefully of what you put on that piece of paper. Everything from the flowery poetry, yep, I did that, expressing my deepest desire and my heart's affection, even to the specific words of the mundane, each phrase was crafted. Each thoughtful and intentional word was there. It was all handwritten. Every single word mattered, and every sentence communicated something, whether it was expressing my love or articulating how I almost died that day. And as I look back and I started reading some of them, it's like, oh, man, I almost died a lot of days. Anyway, 20-year-old Heath, what can I say? This letter here in 1 Corinthians, that we know as 1 Corinthians, it was a letter written from Paul while in Ephesus to a church in Corinth. And we, you know, we spent two years. If you've come, if you're, if you're new and you're like, oh, wow, that was a weird text to preach from. Yeah, it's because we've been two years in 1 Corinthians and we're coming to the end. See, we've come to the end of this journey and we have a comfortable ease with what Paul says here. And, and it's like, It's like we think that this letter was written to us. 
And what we see, you know, it's kind of like when you're watching a movie and you get the whole movie and at the end you've got like the credits rolling and you get kind of the snapshots of what happens after the narrative of the story. Chapter 16 is a little bit like that. And we're, we come to this kind of a little jarred comment. Oh, oh, that's weird. Like travel plans, collection, Timothy, like what? And, and we're, we're concerned. They're like, wait a minute. What happened here? It's because we think this letter was written to us. But that's a huge mistake. Paul wrote this letter in Greek. It was crafted, word smithed in a way for a specific culture at a specific time dealing with localized specific issues. And so we, we can look back in the last few months and, and see that these beautiful words that we looked at in chapter 13 about love, we can see Paul's words that I preached on the last time I was here about the gospel and the power of Jesus' resurrection. We, we can think those are all written to us. But somehow these mundane words, ordinary words in chapter 16 are jarring to us, aren't they? They're a little boring, if I must say. Because when Bo- Brian says, will you preach this Sunday? And I looked at the text, I'm like, hmm, wonder what I'm going to say to that. But I think there's something significant here. I think we have to remember this one thing. Even though this letter was not written to us, and we don't interact with it as like a voyeur, kind of like, you know, you're reading my love letters to my wife. We don't interact in that way. What we do interact with is that in the providence and revelation of God, sorry, beard, mustache, these words for us have meaning and significance because of the word of God. So they may not be written to us, but these words are written for us. So we need to pay attention, even if they're weird and these, they're like travel plans. So what we're going to do is we're going to take and look at the historical context. Our roadmap this morning is this. We're going to practically walk through the text. I'm going to give some commentary, and we're going to look at the historical context. And the second thing we're going to do, we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at the strategic significance and implications of the collection that Paul describes in the first four verses of our text. So, you ready to roll? Collection. One through four. We'll read the text again. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. Now, when we, do, when we look at this issue of collection, there are a few issues at play. Now, to set the stage here, we know from reading the New Testament, Acts, and, and some of the epistles, and we also know from reading non-biblical sources such as, you know, Josephus et al., you know, there was at that time a significant food shortage, multiple famines that lasted many years all across the Mediterranean basin. We know historically that that the hardest hit areas were Judea, where Jerusalem is located, and Egypt. The second thing that we know is both Paul and the leaders of the church in Jerusalem were very concerned for caring for those who were most affected during this difficult period. So we read, we read in another letter of Paul to a church in Galatia, which is modern-day Turkey, we read his account of him visiting Jerusalem, discussing how this good news of Jesus would go forth into all the world. And so we pick the story up in Galatians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. And when James 
and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, so this is Paul speaking, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. And you're like, what does circumcision have to do with this? So bear with me. This is code for saying, you're having a strategic meeting, and these are the pillars of the church in Jerusalem saying, okay, Paul, you... You're Greek-speaking, you're eloquent, you're a Roman citizen. You go and plant churches in the rest of the Roman world. We will deal with and, and plant churches in, in, in the church that, that is of Jewish origin. Okay, so that's verse 9. Verse 10, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So in other words, as you go, Paul, remember the poor. And Paul's like, yeah, that's something that I had in my mind anyway. So Paul traveled. Paul proclaimed this resurrected Jesus across what is now Turkey, Cyprus, Crete, mainland Greece from, Ma- you know, I was teasing the guys in the preaching, you know, Macedonia, that's how they say it in Greek. So from Macedonia to Corinth. So as he proclaimed, as he established churches, he also, alongside of this, practically implemented a structure to accomplish the very thing he was eager to do, tangibly help the poor affected by famine and food shortage and hardship of the struggling Christians in Jerusalem. So, Paul gives us a little bit of strategy how that's actually done. So here in chapter 16, we see the instructions that he implemented in other places. We see him giving this instruction to this church in Corinth. He says, look, I don't want you to start from scratch when I get there. Because one of the issues in the church was patronage and Paul did not want to collect money when he was there as if some sort of weird reciprocal kind of like payment for services rendered in his speaking. No, he says, every Sunday you gather what you have and together as a, as a church, gather money every Sunday so that, so that when I get there, you can give it to me or you, you can, I can give you letters and we will go and we will deliver it together. What this does is it stops some sort of issues of fraud it, it, it stops the patronage and the, the issues of factionalism that were working there. So, the first thing he asks is everybody's to give. As we know, if you, if you don't know, read 1 Corinthians, the first bit again, and, and you'll see one of the huge issues was, was that of some really wealthy people in the church were not treating some of the poor people very well. And so what Paul says, doesn't matter how much cash flow, you are all changed and made new by Jesus. Therefore, you act together. So everybody puts something in. You give from what you have. And what that does is then, then all of this is collected. Now, there's a couple of nerdy comments here. One of the, I work on the downtown east side, and there's a lot of conspiratorial you know, comments, conspiracy theories, and there's a lot of people who come that are like King James only guys, nothing wrong with that. Um, and they think that, that we as Christians have got it wrong for meeting on Sunday. Well, I find it very, very interesting and kind of funny that one of the first times that is mentioned that, that people are on Sunday, the first day of the week, is they're actually in the context of raising cash. So anyway, we won't go down that further. The other thing, I had another guy comment today. It's like, oh, you're preaching from one of the texts where, where Paul gets all socialist on us. I'm like, if I had a face plant emoji there? No. What it is, is Paul saying, look, Regardless of what your socioeconomic status is, everybody is engaged in this giving program. Everybody's engaged. Doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, whether you have leadership in the church or not, you are all equal and we are pooling all of our resources. Why? To help the other. 
very powerful. I don't know if you're familiar. If you're, if you're new to Christ City, let me tell you, every year we practice this sort of thing. We have a sentence sending campaign every December. And we, and we as leaders in the church, we figure out what, where do we want to give our money this year? How do we help? What are the most strategic things to give to? How do we, how do we actually steward our finances well and bolster areas that are low? So what we do is in September or in December, we all give over and above our regular giving and we have a lump of sum of cash flow to use. So last year, Doug, one of your elders, was the recipient for the counseling um, program, which is amazing. If you need counseling, talk to Doug, and he's going to hate me for saying that, and that's okay. I know, there's a wait list, that's why. The other thing is we, we gave money to help plant a church in Surrey, Lord willing, that will occur in this fall. So it's really amazing. This is something that we do already. So people were to give from what they had. Now, the second part of the strategy, which is interesting, talks about another. They would, as they gathered the money, when Paul came, they would pick their own representatives to steward that money, to carry that money. And if Paul happens to be going with to Jerusalem, he would accompany them, but they would be the ones responsible for the money. And if, but if Paul wasn't going to be with them, he would write letters of accommodation for them so that when they arrived in Jerusalem, they could say, this money is for the church in Jerusalem as directed by Paul. Pretty savvy move on Paul. What he does is he, he actually stops issues from of fraud, of like, you know, maybe he's utilizing this money as some like back hustle, et cetera, et cetera. What Paul says here essentially is, look, this is the first century equivalent of an e-transfer. If you want to pay Bob, you, you can carry the money and you pay Bob. Don't give me the money to pay Bob because I don't want to be charged with fraud if the money goes missing. If I get robbed, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So this is what it says: You collect the money, you appoint stewards for that money, and then we will go and give the money. Okay, that's how. That's the instructions on the collection. Now, in a weird, jarring way, it's like one commentator said: First Corinthians 16 is like a potpourri of issues and instructions. So, the next potpourri item, the next floral scent, is travel plans. Let's look at verses five through nine. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia. For I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries." Now, 1 Corinthians was written by Paul in about, you know, scholars think about year 54 AD. This is a few years after Paul's initial founding visit to Corinth. And from what we know from reading Acts and from other letters of Paul, we know both of the open and wide door for effective ministry in Ephesus. We know that. And we also can read about the adversaries in which Paul encountered in Ephesus. If you're curious, this afternoon, read Acts chapter 19. And we also see that Paul did go to Macedonia and Paul did, after a time, make his way down to Corinth. Now, I've traveled that route from Macedonia to Corinth and that's about six hours by car. Mountain ranges, sweltering heat. The reason why he did that was to connect with all the churches all the way along, all the way down. So what you can interestingly see, Acts chapter 20, verses one to three, said this. So you can see this in real time in Acts chapter 20. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples 
So the uproar is the whole, you know, adversaries that Paul was talking about in his letter. And after, the, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed from Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. That's code for Corinth. There he spent three months. And when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So we do not know all the details of Paul's trip, but we know he did visit Corinth a second time, as he promises here in chapter 16. And Paul describes it in a subsequent letter to the Corinthians. Paul describes this visit, this three-month stint, as a painful visit. Clearly, the issues that he articulated in this first level, he met with resistance when he arrived. Look at Second Corinthians. It's another letter, chapter 2, verse 1. And he's talking about some more issues. And Paul says this, For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. Clearly, there's stuff going on. So this is, this is, the, this is our text. So with, with this idea of collection... He outlines his, you know, travel plans, and now he turns his attentions to the arrival of Timothy. Verses 10 and 11 in our text. Now when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you. For he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace that he may return to me. For I am expecting him with, my, with the brothers. Now, what we can see here, and what we can also infer here, is that Paul is actively working to mitigate a problem that he sees coming before it arises. As we've seen, Corinth was a church consumed by power, consumed by status, culminating in kind of this weird cult of celebrity leadership. I wonder where we've heard that before. Uh, Knowing this and knowing that Timothy is young, knowing that Timothy is unknown in this context, knowing that Timothy is untested in this church, Paul feels the need to cut them off at the pass and to pump his tires. Paul says, Timothy's my boy. He's my guy. He is the Lord's emissary to you. For me, treat him as you would treat me. Paul puts his stamp of approval and authority on Timothy as to stop any sabotage from the beginning. But Paul also doesn't just charge them just to accept them, but he also charges this church to resource him for his continued work in ministry, to come back to Paul, because he's doing the work of the Lord. Paul puts his reputation on the line for Timothy here to platform him, so to speak. So that's our text this morning. That's kind of the historical content that we walk through. That's the world in the first century that we walk into. Now for us reading this, you know, some whatever, 15, you know, almost 2,000 years later, you know, less 20 years. The difficulty for us in 1 Corinthians 16 here is like, what's applicable for us today? We don't write letters. We certainly don't walk or travel by sail across anymore. Um, Maybe we can talk about platforming. So we could easily approach this and talk about the generosity of life and our giving and our finances. Sure, we could do that. We could also talk about how we could be generous and flexible with our time and our schedules. That would be very appropriate. We could also talk about how we are to be generous with our, our, and steward our power graciously. And that would, we would not be wrong in doing any of those things. But might I suggest something different? Now, if we take a step up, step back 
we might be able to see the picture a little bit clearer here. Paul crafts this letter to this church using pen and paper, so to speak. And he is concerned with a couple of very specific and troubling things. Paul confronts and criticizes errant social behavior in this letter and errant theological beliefs. Paul confronts what they believe and how they act. We see that, right? We've also seen that the main problem of this Corinthian church is factiousness and division. Factiousness and division. A factionalism across the spectrum of belief and a factionalism resulting in errant behavior towards others. Factionalism in what they believed and how they acted as a church. This is why Paul builds his argument as he does all the way first through 1 Corinthians and the climax of which is in verse um, in chapter 13, this is why he says, in Jesus, we, we have this love. We can give this love. And then he says, look, we only can do that through the power of the gospel, the power of the resurrection. And this is what we spent like five, six weeks in chapter 15. All of this is like, guys, you're believing wrong things about Jesus. And as a result, you're not acting like Jesus. They had troubles with the resurrection of Jesus. And as a result, they did not love accordingly. They did not love sacrificially. They did not love in the, in the issues ranging from their eating habits. They did not love in how they dealt with syncretism and their idolatry. They did not love in how they approached sexual ethics. They did not love in the way they even exercised their gifts from God in a worshiped, gathered context. Paul spends this whole letter articulating who Jesus is and how they, as believers, need to respond and act through a changed life by the resurrection. Paul tells them all of this and his hope and his desire that they would not fall, these words would not fall on deaf ears. So I have a question for you this morning. Maybe it's just me. Have you ever pitched an idea, kind of a something you're passionate about and you're passionate and you're talking and, and people are listening and they've got glassed over eyes? Is it just me? Probably just me. Okay, I'll put it to you this way. Have you ever wondered why after you've told your kids or your roommates to please clean the microwave after you use it and the next time you open it up and there's a science experiment growing in there? Have you ever wondered why you can say things a thousand times and nobody actually listens? The problem is this. You can cast vision. You can call people to something better. You can even compel people to right thinking, urge them to right behavior. This is what Paul does in the entirety of this letter of 1 Corinthians. But the principle is this. More often than not, I've seen anecdotally, people need to not only hear you, but to truly grasp the concept, they need to actually actively participate in it. People need vision and they need a some way, some outlet to actually engage with it. We need to actively practice the vision, the idea, the understanding. Otherwise, it will be of no benefit to them. This is why most of the people that I know have come to faith in the last five, six years, and there are a few of them, quite a few of them. This is why most of them had to belong before they believed. They felt like they were part of something and then their behavior changed through the gospel work of Jesus in their hearts. It's not always that way, but it's fairly normative. Paul teaches, and he tells them to deal with patronage, 
He pleads with them to stop being partial to those around them, to deal with the factionalism in all avenues of thought and deed. The collection, though, is his tangible and practical way to show them, to, to lead them by the hand, to look like exactly how this is done. Think about this. If the issue is division and factionalism across a plethora of issues, the problem is that they aren't communicating with one another very well. Paul gets them to work together, unified as a church, to help somebody else. There's nothing quite like something to gather, a, 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 some vision to gather around to actually have people talk to each other. This is why potlucks are great. The idea of food, you get people together and you have people talk to one another that never speak to each other. Fortunately, that didn't work in Corinth. And Paul says, okay, we're going to try some cash flow stuff. If you want to break an attitude of partiality, have all parties give to a common pot. Have all parties decide who will take that pot to give to somebody else. But the funny thing is, the interesting thing is, is that, that Paul's vision for this is actually bigger and crazier than just unity in the local church here at Corinth. Paul's strategy is one of unity and mutuality in Jesus. Mutuality says that we have something to receive and something to give. And we just came through Easter. In fact, Greek Easter is this weekend. They have a weirder calendar. And I'm getting my feet is filled with like everybody roasting their lambs, right? And Easter is the event where we celebrate mutuality in the person and work of Jesus. Now, we probably don't think of it in those terms, but think of it this way. If you wanted to know what Christianity is, what it means, it means this. Jesus gives his life so that we can receive his life. That's what it means to have mutuality in Jesus. We see this all over chapter 15. And when we surrender our lives, when we give of ourselves to Jesus, it's what we had baptisms. When we go under and we come back made new, it's a symbol that we have given our life to him and in him we receive his life, a resurrected life. So at a macro level, Paul's strategy is absolutely brilliant. Think about this. You have a church in Jerusalem whose tendency is to think that they are ethnically superior to and look down upon the inferior Gentile. <laughs> After all, they were the promised people of God, right? They were superior. They had the right practice. They had the history. They had the right worship tunes. Come on, Gentiles, get with the program. You need to become Jews. So we see Paul dealing with this specific issue in the letter of Galatians. This ethnic and corresponding cultural superiority breeds factionalism. Due to external circumstances, this Jewish church suddenly found itself in dire straits. In times of poverty, famine, possibly starvation, it was that bad. So although they were steeped in history, although they were the promised people of God, with a heritage and a lineage, this church found itself materially poor. So Paul's strategy is he launches new churches all across Turkey, all across Macedonia, all across Greece, is to have these Gentile churches give back and as a show of love to somebody that they didn't know, this church in Jerusalem. 
Paul wants this gift not just to be, you know, mitigating the, the plight of the poor. No, he wants it to be a symbol for something so much bigger. Paul uses this sacrificial act of giving and the collection by every other Christian in the known world at the time. And he uses that as a metaphor of mutuality in Jesus to proclaim that these Gentile Christians were part of the same body, were part of the same family as the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem were. But due to this ethnic factionalism, more importantly, as these representatives from all these churches came, gave money directly to the poor and the needy of Jerusalem, they had a face-to-face realization that, oh my goodness, maybe these Gentile Christians have received our Messiah. They've received our Messiah and they are a part of our family and part of the body as Paul talks about here without having to become Jews in the process. This strategy is absolutely profound. Actively giving sacrificially for the other across factional boundaries, whether it's ethnic or socioeconomic, not only displays a mutuality sourced in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, but what it does, it actively engages the whole church in participating in this mutuality as one body. This was Paul's meta strategy for the collection. And it's so much bigger than just economic relief. Because economic relief can be a paternalistic way. But no, this is a mutuality of giving and receiving in Jesus. Christ City, the collection is a strategy of unity based around the mutuality that we all share around Jesus, through Jesus. Now, last time I checked, on the surface, we look pretty good, don't we? But I think deep down, our hearts... We still have troubles with this, just like this church in Corinth. We still have factionalism across the spectrum of belief, and we still have a factionalism in errant behavior. We believe wrong things about Jesus, and as a result, we act wrong things about Jesus to others. Now, to overstate and to actually illustrate my point, I would like to share you a parable of failure. You're like, what? Now, I call this the parable of the two house guests. Now, I wish I could say that this account was fictional, but it is based off real events in my life. Now, there once was a man and his family, they were missionaries in Greece. And there was a time when this missionary was asked by two of his friends to host two different house guests. Both guests were male. Both guests were in their 50s. Both of these men were Christians. But that is where their similarities end. Now, guest number one, he is white. He is famous. This man is a world-renowned biblical scholar with titles, with tenure, at a famous seminary. It's not Ian Proven, don't worry. He is a man with book deals. He is a man with wealth. He is a man with power. He's a man with status. He is a man with privilege. And everything that goes with that. Guest number two, guest number two is a new Christian. He'd been a believer about three months. Guest number two is a nobody. Guest number two, in fact, culturally, he is worse than a nobody. He's a cultural pariah. He is uh, from the ethnic group called the Romani. This is a nomadic people group with a storied thousand years history in Europe. This man's cultural and ancestral pedigree walks before him in superstition as something to be feared, 
the menace in the night, theft incarnate. This man was thought of as a visible cultural parasite, hated and actively oppressed and persecuted by society, inside and outside of the church. So both of these men, they come and stay at the missionary's house about a month apart. Now, guest number one comes with an entourage of suitcases, you know, the rollies, and he's got even a house servant, which is my friend. But anyway, he, uh, guest number two has an air of smugness about him. He was offered the finest food. He was offered the best drink. He was offered the best place at the table. Children were moved so that he could have a room in the house and given the best linen that the missionary could afford. Guest number two came with nothing. No suitcases, only the clothes on his back. Begrudgingly, the missionary offered his spare socks and spare underwear. All the while waiting to be taken advantage of and expecting nothing in return. Guest number two was an inconvenience. Guest number two was, a, was offered the couch as to not disturb the very important routine and most prestigious work of the missionary. Guest number one stayed two weeks, consumed all the food, all the drink, and like a plague of locusts, guest number one devoured all of the missionary's time and hospitality. And when he'd gone, there was nothing but the carnage of empty beer cans, and an ashtray full of chain-smoked Cuban cigars. Guest number two, intending only to stay for one night, stayed for a week and left on the train with only a pile of neatly folded socks that he'd washed in the bathroom sink. Christ City, it is this attitude and these actions that Paul is actively teaching against in 1 Corinthians. It is this issue that the collection was actively working against. In my ignorance, and in my indifference, I dishonored guest number two. Instead of the arm of brotherhood, I showed impartiality. Full stop. All I did was widen the factional gap. I became one in a line of others who oppressed this man and his people due to wealth, cultural status, and it's to my shame. To my shame. The underlying issue for us this morning is this. We show partiality. We actively and subconsciously promote divisive systems of power, We are factional for the very same reasons the Corinthians were. Why? Because we desire comfort. We desire autonomy in our time and our schedules. We desire safety. We desire power. We desire control and all the influence that money and prestige offers. The good news is that Jesus became the lowest of the low. He became a pariah. He was oppressed. He suffered, and he innocently died as an outcast so that offenders like you and I, oh, 
we can be heirs to a kingdom that is not our own. Jesus receives the penalty of death for my partiality. And I gain everything. That should change how you approach the world. See, in my parable, I, just like the Corinthians, had forgotten that Christ said that we need to be on our knees in repentance of these things. So this morning, you may be thinking, okay, Heath, yeah. Dude, it's like Vancouver, and it's 2023. We here at Christ City Kids, we're not racist. We don't show partiality. Come on. We aren't divisive. We aren't factional. That may be true. That may be true. But I, wasn't, I didn't think I was either until I was directly confronted by it. So to be honest, it is in this parable of my failure. This has been the catalyst for me in the gospel, why I live and I work on Vancouver's downtown east side. And I do that not in a place of superiority, but from a place of mutuality in Jesus. I have been changed by Jesus, and I am now free to give and to receive from a place of humility. I lift Jesus high, and I fade into the background, recognizing that I have something not only to give the people of the downtown east side, but I am also the one who receives. I receive vertically through relationship with Jesus, but I also receive horizontally from the love that I get from my neighbors. I have been accepted as a friend on the downtown east side by, friend, by people that I never thought I would be. Therefore, that gives me the, the beautiful honor to reciprocate that love to others. So the question is, what is it that we have, just like the Corinthians, what is it that we've received that unites us, that unifies us, what have we received undeservedly that we are compelled across ethnic boundaries, across theological boundaries, across financial boundaries, dare I say ideological boundaries and political lines? What, what unifies us to do that work? Ah, it's because we've received Jesus Christ's city. We come to him broken. We all come to him broken. And in him, we receive grace. We receive love. We receive acceptance. We receive adoption as family. We're called friend. We've even received finances that are not our own. We stand on the shoulders of others. It's interesting. I was thinking through, in the last 10 years, I've had five different cars. And I've not paid for any of them. I have generously received the gracious donations and gifts from others. And I reciprocated. I've given away in the last 10 years four cars. And when my car, I'm ready for a different one, the new one will come along and I will give my van away. This is, this is what it means. I have mutuality in, in people who love and care for me and I give back to them. So Christ City, I ask of you this morning, what is our metaphorical collection strategy as a church that will break these areas of division, of factionalism that are cleverly disguised and kind of hidden under the surface? What is our collection strategy, Christ City? What is our strategy to unify us as we grapple with issues of wokeism, of sexual ethics, progressive or conservative ideologies, politics? How does a resurrected Jesus help us build a strategy to interact as broken people to other broken people across a pantheon of factions, beliefs, divisions, and lifestyle choices?
might I suggest that as a start today, we look into the mirror and we repent. And we confess the areas that we know we have bias. And then we begin to pray. We begin to pray that, God, will you show me areas where I'm blind to this in my life? So we repent, we confess, and we pray. We not only pray for ourselves, but we also pray for the one. So I want you to picture in your mind the the person that's probably the hardest for you to talk to. And you begin to pray for that person. Because when you begin to pray for them, your biases, they come present and you can actually deal with them. And when you pray for somebody, it's amazing how much you can actually talk to them. So join me in in prayer this morning as we confess areas where we have discriminated, where we've shown partiality due to race, culture, riches, ideology, whatever it is. Let us confess together the areas where we feel superior. I'll probably get flack for this one. In our theological viewpoints, where we feel superior in our methodological prowess or our our ideology. So let's come to the table in communion this morning, laying down our factionalism, Christ City. Let's pray. God, I confess to you that I'm so broken, whether it's trauma in my past or cultural background or things that I was taught as a child. Lord, forgive me for areas where I have been ignorant, where my actions and my words and the things that I've done have hurt others that cause division, factions. Lord, would you please forgive me for the sins that I have willingly committed and the sins that I did not know I commit. So Lord, I ask that this, this church would do the same. I ask that we would be praying for the ones that are, are the, the most difficult in our minds to see and talk to and to reach. So Lord, we come before you and your table where we are made new, where we're reminded of your death, your burial, your resurrection. Lord, I ask that we would confess our stuff and we would partake and enjoy, enjoy we would be made new. This I pray, amen. So before we get on, I would like for us to, to say an ancient prayer. I will say it once and then you will repeat and we'll say it again and you can repeat after me or with me. The words are this, Jesus Christ, son of God, have mercy on us as sinners. So let's say that. Jesus Christ, son of God, have mercy on us as sinners. Jesus Christ, son of God, have mercy on us as sinners.